I can see you. All right, guys. Thank you. We're back with another episode of It Is What It Is podcast. Super excited about this episode. I have with me two guests. My other guests will be joining Shirley's experience a little technical difficulties. But I have two amazing individuals uh, going on the current state of politics. And I'll just read their bios. I'll start with Melik Abdul because Melik responded first. I want to first start there and say I reached out to Melik. First of all, I'm a fan. I watched the Roland Martin a digital show and uh growing up in the house that i grew up with my father was a black conservative i mean like to the core right he thought ronald reagan was the second coming my mother is an ultra liberal you know so that was a lot of weirdness going on right there but it worked uh and i'm super excited of having him on uh, i'm going to read his bio uh so here with me melik abdul is a media commentator political strategist and community activist with over 15 years of public and private sector experience in public relations and policies since walking away from the Democratic Party in 2016, he has carved out a unique space as an advocate for conservative policies and a key player in expanding the black conservative movement. Uncanny in his ability to appeal to the audiences on both sides of the political aisle and after analysis across the broad spectrum of disciplines, Melek has become a frequent guest on RT America, Black News Channel, One American News Network, and the Critical Hour with Dr. Wilmer Leon. He has also appeared on a growing number of national publications, local TV, university. Malik began his federal government. So just an amazing individual. Uh, and I have with me my next guest. Uh, I just am so grateful for her, Zoe. Uh, Zoe Kador, uh, just an amazing person. As you can see, my, my other guest has added. Uh, I'm thankful for her. She responded. Look, go to her page, check out the interview she did uh, with uh, Tiva Johnson, who's running for dub shit in Atlanta, Georgia, correct? Uh, Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. And I'm going to read Zoe's uh, bio. Zoe Kador is a policy advisor for the American Petroleum Institute, where she works with industry, government, and customer stakeholders to promote increased demand for and continued availability of our nation's abundant and clean natural gas resources. Her primary areas of responsibility are natural gas and power generation. Ms. Kador was a 2016 to 2018 CBCF fellow and previously served as energy, environment, and STEM advisor to Congressman Mark Vesey from the 33rd District of Texas and has worked on the House Judiciary Committee as well as for Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, one of the only Sheila Jackson Lee of the 18th District of Texas. Uh, has a BA from Spelman College, a JD from the University of Houston Law Center, and a proud Houstonian of Grenadian Guyanese heritage. And then I have with my last guest, the attorney uh, Elliot Powell. He is assistant pastor of Freedom Temple Church of God in Christ, community activist in the Chatham neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Uh, just an amazing guest, and I just appreciate uh, all of you guys being here. Uh, thank you guys for just being on the show. How's everyone doing? Everybody, we're doing good. Thank you. Yeah, good, good. Excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. All right, cool. Well, I want to start this off because uh, I want to get into it. There's been a lot of interesting developments um, in the political spectrum, to say the least. Over the last weekend, I know, you know, I want to throw this in. It's a little curveball, but it's a little one. You can hit this out of the park. Kanye West announced his candidacy for president of the United States of America. Elon Musk said he has his full support behind Kanye West. Melik, I start with you. Is this a needed political thing or is this Kanye being Kanye? Melik, can't hear you. You're on mute. 
Still can't hear you. So I know I, I hear everything. So I'll turn the question to you until Mella gets correct. Kanye West, is this a for real thing? <laughs> I mean, you know, anyone is able to run for president. He certainly has the money to do it, if that's what he so wishes. Is it a real thing, as in, is it something that we as voters should take serious? I would say no. Um, I think we are in a very critical time, and it's, it's imperative that we are electing someone to the presidency that is um, compassionate to all people and is serious about the position and is going to make the right policy decisions, especially given this current climate. Um, Kanye West is not who would come to top of mind. <laughs> um, and so, you know, while we don't want to stifle anyone's dream of running for office, I do think we have to keep things into perspective. And um, so, yeah, he's not someone who I would, I would jump on board for. Um, but, you know, I think I think what's wonderful about the democratic process is that everyone has an opportunity to run and to have a voice. And so I am interested to see what he has to say. Um, I'm not necessarily confident in that it will be something that's going to be of value and, and of meaning. But I do think, you know, he deserves as fair of a chance as anyone else to get his name out there if that's what he chooses to do. And so. I think it's going to be interesting. Um, he might bring up some issues just from his perspective that a traditional candidate would not bring up. And so I think anytime that we're able to create dialogue around topics that aren't typically discussed in these types of elections, I think that's always good because it gets people thinking about what are we not thinking about? So, I, you know, if the old Kanye shows up, I actually would be very, very excited. So we will see. The old Kanye, Melik. Your thoughts, Kanye West. Hopefully, it's working now. Am I working now? Can you still can't hear me? It's coming. You got to turn it off. It's, it's got to turn it off. It's coming through now. Can you hear me now? Is that a little better? A little better, but it's got to come up some more. Uh oh, I'm gonna jack it all the way. Right up. here, right here. We got you now. There we go. There we go. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for the invitation. I totally appreciate it. You know, I'm I'm for all black people succeeding. I want all of us to win. So the fact that you're starting this podcast, I think is an awesome thing. I wanted to just, Roland has pretty much messed it up for me everywhere because how he decides to pronounce my name. So my name is actually Mel Eek. Roland oh. says Malik. So everyone knows me as Malik. Whenever I'm out, they always call me Malik, but it's actually Mel Eek, Malik. But yeah, Malik, just simply M-E-L-I-K, Malik. That's all it is. Um, but about Kanye West. <sighs> Kanye is being Kanye. You know, I don't take Kanye seriously. As, as a Black conservative, even when there were people who were excited about the fact that Kanye West seemed to be supportive of the president or even the party for that matter, I was never one of those who was impressed by it. Personally, I typically don't care with any celebrity, particularly someone um, what, as brilliant but as scatterbrained as Kanye West is. I think it's great. Um, I actually co-signed Zoe. Is it Zoe or Zoe? Zoe. Zoe. Yeah, I actually co-signed Zoe. And 
everyone should get a chance to express, you know, to participate in the civic process. If he chooses to run, I think that's a great thing for him. But I don't think that he's serious about running. I think that this is a distraction. And what I also will say, I do not believe that this is part of a larger conspiracy with he and Donald Trump for him to take votes for him. Joe Biden, because I don't think that he will. If if Kamala Harris can't get um, votes from the black community, I doubt very seriously that Kanye West will either. Awesome. Awesome. I'm sorry. I've been messing up names all day. I haven't had enough coffee. Zoe and Malik. I'm going to just call you Mr. Abdul. Attorney Powell, your thoughts. Kanye. Yes, sir. We're Chicagoan. He's a Chicagoan. Do we throw our South Side? Yeah. Kanye West. Okay. Well, Kanye turned me off when I saw him uh, on his rant in the Oval Office, where he just went on and on and on. And uh, the thing that got me was when he said that we needed to nullify the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. And one of the reasons was that 13 is an unlucky number. And even when you go to high-rise buildings, it goes from floor 12 to 14. It misses 13. And I'm saying, did he have any idea that the 13th Amendment to the Constitution is really what set the slaves free? People sometimes think, oh, the Emancipation Proclamation set the slaves free. Not true. There was still legalized slavery in the border states. Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, those were all slave states that refused to leave the Union. The Emancipation Proclamation only spoke to the states where they had seceded from the union. But the 13th Amendment did away even in the border states. He did not realize that. And I, I put on a post somewhere, if he really is serious about running for president, he needs a serious lesson in U.S. history. I, I think that Kanye just gets excited about something that happens in the moment without thinking something all the way through. So, I mean, when you go through the presidency or, or run for, for the presidency, there's all types of arrows and daggers and everything that gets thrown. You know, ask Barack Obama, you know, everything from uh, his pastor, Reverend Wright, to, you know, whatever. I mean, all those things get thrown on you. And if you can't stand it, it just doesn't come to, to, into to being. I, I appreciate what Zoe said. I appreciate what Malik said. You know, everybody ought to have a chance to run. I guess in theory that's true, but sometimes you can kind of see down the road, oh my goodness, this is going to have a disastrous ending. When I heard about Kanye, I said, oh my goodness, if he was serious, it would have a disastrous ending. Gotcha. I guess you weren't a fan of the college dropout album. All right. That was soft. Uh, Attorney yeah. Powell, I'm going to start with you. And then, um, uh, Malik, Mr. Abdul, I don't know why Roland has ruined it for me. Uh, Mr. Abdul, I want to go after you, Attorney Powell. I'll start with you. Uh, we are yes, in the, I want to say final stages, but medically speaking, that's not true uh, when it comes to COVID-19. The handling of COVID-19 uh, from the executive office, what are your thoughts on that? It, it was mishandled from the beginning. Uh it, I believe it was on January 3rd when the CDC first received word that there was some type of virus in China 
and it may mean toward our country. So just beware of it. We had, and this was the interesting thing, under the Obama administration, after we had sent humanitarian aid for Ebola over to West Africa, when the doctors got back, the uh, medical professionals who were in the White House said, kind of a plan just in case something like this happens in the United States. And thus was born with the playbook. And that was if a virus or something such as that comes to the United States, these are the steps that we need to, to, to take to make sure that it doesn't just run up. For whatever reason, the Trump administration, from what I'm understanding, did not pay attention to that book. And so much of the things such as testing, making sure who has the virus, all of those things were kind of thrown out the window. So I'm believing that this was actually mishandled from Jump Street. Uh, there were some things that should have happened that just didn't happen. When the president says anybody who wants a test can get one, well, come on then, get tests all over the place. But no, that was the case. And so, you know, there, there's been some serious mishandling here. Mr. Abdul, your thoughts. Has this been mishandled or this uh, left-wing media twisting words? Your thoughts on this? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I And as I've said when I've been asked about this many times is that I can't think of a time where our federal government has handled something like um, really any type of, whether it's a natural disaster, though the, the first time that it happens, I can't think of an instance where our government has actually handled this well. And so I do believe that there are definitely things that the administration, um, they lagged as far as definitely when you're talking about things like testing. But, and there were good points actually made that people have made about the pandemic playbook. But if you listen to even some of the criticisms, there were a couple of, there were a few things that people have said. So they said that obviously, yes, that the Obama administration created a pandemic response playbook. Then there were people saying that it was because Trump disbanded the pandemic response unit. And then there was also the whistleblower who came out very recently and said that the things that he was telling um, Secretary Azar and others at, I think that was either, in, I think it was NIH, that they simply were not listening to him. When it comes to testing, that seems like what we did wrong from the beginning, because there were a lot of assumptions that we made that understanding this is something that we've never experienced before. So there were things that the CDC did that the CDC had to do as far as just changing what where tests are available to be, you know, where we're able to send tests to. There are a lot of things that did uh, uh, really, it, and I know it sounds crazy, but there was a lot of red tape that the federal government should have cleared in advance of that. There were things that we knew definitely early on about the vi that there was an existence of a virus in, uh, by January 3rd. And so the attorney is definitely right about that, but we didn't find out that there were some that there was human to human transmission until I think a couple of weeks after that. But sure, there were definitely things that the administration, really, as all administrations, you can go back in history, um, that the administration should have done right. 
but there are in a lot of that was really related to red tape. And I think the what from my perspective, there was a lot of discussions about not caring or, you know, I don't believe any of those things. I do, as someone who worked in federal government for years, most recently at the Department of Veterans Affairs, I understand how difficult it is to really get those type of messages through, even to your superiors. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump is president. So ultimately, he's the one who's going to have to bear responsibility for it. But I think I do believe that some of this is a bit of hype and how people have responded to it. Awesome. Zoe, I, I have to agree with Mr. Abdul, uh, not to play devil's advocate. If this is unprecedented, we have never uh, been faced with this type of uh, viral bacterial threat before. So to say uh, success or failure would be a far stretch. A lot of people have different opinions on it. COVID-19, how do you feel about how it was handled? Well, I'll, I'll start off by saying I'm definitely not a health policy expert, but just from my limited knowledge of how the federal government works and how um, advising works from a uh, political appointee standpoint, you know, I think there's a lot of things we need to question when it comes to the role that Secretary Azar played in this. Um, if President Trump is stating, I don't believe you, there's no pan there's no issue, there's no uh, pandemic coming, you know, as, as Secretary, it's your job to step in and say, look, we need to take this seriously. We need to look at all of our options. We need to consider the fact that this is actually a real thing. Um, and this happens with every industry from energy to um, cybersecurity to intelligence. It is the job of the secretary to make sure that the president is being properly advised. So while I do think that President Trump um, has dropped the ball, I also think we need to look at his administration and who was advising him and who was letting him go on TV and tell the public it wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, where was the task force? Where was the convening of all of the agencies in the beginning to really sit down and talk about the, the impacts that this was going to have? Because it doesn't just affect health, it's affected every single industry. It's affected our economy, and then it trickles down to the states. And so there, there was a lack of coordination within the federal government in terms of properly addressing this issue and, and planning for it. And it's something that you have to always Keep in mind what you know. What happens if we have a global health crisis? What do we do? How do we respond? And there just seems to have been no, um, just no thought behind that. It's like we never anticipated it happening. And when you're running a country as large as, as the United States of America, you have to anticipate the worst. Um, and then also, you know, I, I think we also have to look at the states and the state governors. Um, because at the end of the day, President Trump is going to give some guidelines, and then the states can either run with that or not. And states have a lot of power in terms of how they're governing, what businesses are open, um, the guidelines in terms of how we are interacting with people every day. And there was a lot of, you know, lax policies that were put in place. Um, I'm from Texas, so I can account for how relaxed the state of Texas has been during this crisis. And unfortunately, it's black and brown people who are suffering the most, which makes you question, well, what was the motive behind these lax policies to begin with. If we understand um, if we understand how health really impacts lower income and communities of color, um, you know, how does that trickle down to a pandemic? So while I don't place all of the blame on President Trump, I do think as the leader of this country, you know, he should of course take that responsibility. But yeah, I mean it was it was um, a trifecta. 
and it was multiple people from the states to the to the federal governments and agencies to the White House that are really going to be the ones who we're going to be pointing the blame at a year from now. Awesome. So I want to start with you on this. Look, let's take it up. So we understand the impact from a health standpoint of COVID-19. Like anything, it always has a direct impact on the economics, right? So I'm an investor. I got an email uh, about an investment I have in Amazon. Amazon has peaked over $3,000 per share. Uh, the old adage goes that when there's blood on the street, buy property. And as sad and sadistic as that sounds, there is truth to that. What economic policies need to be implemented? When we think about the economic disparity uh, that is just across the board, right? What is the first thing, you know, whoever gets elected come January, you know, 1, 2021, what, what is the first thing economically? Is it universal basic income? Uh, is it the elimination of student loans? What needs to happen economically for the country to go forward? All right. Well, that's a loaded question. Um, I won't say <laughs> my answer will will definitely not be by priority. I think there are a, a variety of things that we can work on. One thing that I will touch on from an energy standpoint is just energy equity. Um, so we have a record number of people who are at home right now because of the impacts of COVID. And everyone is having to rely on being able to have air conditioning to heat their homes during the summer, being able to cook their food, being able to turn on the electricity, have access to internet. Um, and for us who live in the big cities, it's something that we may not think about, but there is a serious lack of access to broadband as well as um, reliable energy sources such as natural gas within this country, especially in the rural cities. Um, there are thousands of people who are living without internet access and who are um, living without natural gas access, which is the number one source of energy in this country and um, you know the most reliable source that we have. And so I think addressing that is going to be critical in this upcoming administration, um, especially if it is the Biden administration, which is going to be more um, you know, left-leaning is going to want to enact policies that are much more liberal and may not be as favorable towards um, energy resources such as oil and gas. But we really need to think about it from an affordability standpoint and an accessibility standpoint um, and making sure that we're putting policies in place that fit every income level. And so it's, it's definitely going to be an interesting conversation going forward, considering the fact that so many people are going to be at home. Can they afford their light bills? Can they afford their internet bill? Can they even have access to those basic qualities of life that so many of us take for granted? Awesome, awesome. Mr. Abdul, uh, Zoe hit upon it. Energy equity, something that I didn't even consider uh, that really uh, enlightened me. What, from an economic standpoint, you, you know, and obviously he inherited a great economy. Uh, I believe when Trump came to office, I want to say the unemployment was around 4%. The height of it got as low as 3.5%. I can't take that from them, despite how I feel. They can't take that. It's just a known fact. Economically, and it doesn't have to be necessarily by priority, but what is the first thing that needs to happen? One of our uh, uh, viewers said UBI, universal basic income. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm not for universal basic income. But before we even get to the next administration, we have to dig ourselves out of the economic crisis that we're in. And so there are several things that the administration and even Congress, for that matter, have been focused on. But I think a, a, for me, 
and just talking to friends, you know, one of the big things is definitely trying to really um, rebuild our black businesses that have been lost. Now, there are then there are people who have, you know, as far as these loans are concerned and who has access to the loans, because we see a lot of conversations about this company getting it versus this company, this company not deserving it and X number of black businesses are not able to get the funds. But that is and this is something that I had a conversation on it was with John Hope Bryant um, on Roland's show, to be exact, where he talked about that there are definitely black people who are who actually benefited from the, I think the PPP loans. The mm -hmm. problem is, is that only so few of us have access to that. So if you were black and you had, you were in that network and you had those connections, then you were much more likely to get approved for a loan as someone, for instance, where I live here in DC, who may not have those connections or even Texas for that matter, who may not have those connections. And so a lot of this is about access. So working with the Small Business Administration and many of the people who are really there for the minority development we have to their Congress, the administration really has to be laser focused on rebuilding that because so many even in the um, I live in D.C. proper, but in the DMV area, our local DMV area, about 25 percent of businesses will not reopen. And that's 25 percent of the businesses will not be reopened. So that's not just your, um, you know, that your minority owned businesses as far as black people, Hispanics, Asians, white Americans, all across the board. Businesses are not open. So I think one of the things definitely has to be how do we rebuild the black business footprint? And also, in addition to that, what can we do to help those companies who were affected, who are who are still open? But there are a lot of these companies that are out there. And I don't want to just take the focus away from regular citizens like me, but there's a lot of help that we're going to have to give our businesses who not just lost income because there weren't people working, but our government, our Congress, they were saying, hold off on those mortgages, hold off on those late bills. Don't press them for, you know, paying rent. There are a lot of things that our businesses have had to endure. And I think that's definitely one of a focus where I would have. What can we do to help build up our businesses who've lost so much where many of us work? Awesome. Attorney Powell has agreed, Mr. Bill. What can we do to build up our black business footprint? Economically, where do we start? You and me, we're Chicagoans, right? Uh, the South Side looks like looks like a war zone. And that's just being honest, right? Yeah, it did. It, it does. And to some degree, still does. And it does, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was riding around today and was just almost heartbroken by the number of boarded up buildings uh, on the South Side. Things that were, you know, were uh, stores that were, you know, actually in, in place. And they're, they're just all boarded up now. Uh, I think that Malik and Zoe have spoken very well to their points. And uh, Malik, I know you're conservative. And Zoe, are you a conservative also? Zoe, I, I don't know I whether like she's a conservative or. Democrat. Okay. Well, at the <laughs> risk of sounding like Bernie Sanders, uh, one of the things that I think we have to look at is healthcare. Because in the midst of the pandemic, how many people don't have health care? And, you know, one of the things that Bernie kept saying when he was running is 
so many people are going to have to declare bankruptcy because they are, you know, two steps away because of a medical emergency from not having, uh, you, you know, not having anything to, to, to come with. And one thing that, that has upset me about uh, the Trump administration is that they want Obamacare totally annihilated. Okay, that's his desire. I would be all right with that if you had a replacement. But no, the Republicans, I, I, I call them, uh, well, I won't tell you what I call them. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, they just don't have any guts, okay? You were saying the Republicans, what it is. There's no censorship on this show. <laughs> no. I call them gutless wonders. The gutless wonders who are in majority that have not presented not one piece of proposed legislation when it comes to health care. So what are the American people supposed to do? I mean, this this is is it's it's unthinkable. But I think that as we think about economics, we cannot leave healthcare out. So now uh, today there was a Supreme Court ruling regarding um, whether the a, a woman's contraceptive things like pills and all of that had to be put on to her employer. And I think that the the court, and it was, I was surprised, there was a seven to two decision that basically said, no, uh, she doesn't have to have her employer to pay for uh, contraception. Okay, so then the, the commentators were asking the beginning of the whittling away of Obamacare. Well, we don't know. So we'll have to stay tuned for that situation. But if Biden wins, knowing that he was an integral part of the Affordable Care Act, I see where he won't at least come up with some type of alternative for the American people when it comes to health care. But what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that as we're thinking of economics, health care is a major concern when it comes to the economy. Awesome. Awesome. Two more questions that I know we got to get you guys going. I know you're on a time constraint. If you're like me, uh, the Church of God in Christ has decided to open back up. So like now my whole calendar is botched. So um, I want to talk about voting reform. Attorney Powell, I'm going to start with you. Um, I don't live in Georgia, but what I saw during the Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp election was disgusting. It was poll taxing. And that's the best way to say it. What does voter reform look like? Can't shouldn't I be in 2020 at a point where I can log on to an app, submit my credentials, and just vote? What does voter reform look like? Well, I think Cody, voting reform looks something like that. But before you can even get to a situation where you can register by just getting an app on your phone, we've got to have uh those in public office who think like that. So maybe Zoe and maybe Malik will run for public office and maybe they'll bring to the the Congress floor uh, those things that need to be done. Uh, you know, it's it's was it in the state of Kentucky recently in their primary where there were so many polling places that had been closed that I think it was something like 40% 
of the African Americans in Louisville, Kentucky, had to go to one polling place. Hmm. That's unreal. But that was something that had that that was done. Of course, the Supreme Court some years ago started whittling away at the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was actually to ensure that minorities and African Americans particularly had those mechanisms in place where they could go in and vote and uh, do so without too much of a problem. Well, the Supreme Court said, uh, well, we don't really need that anymore. So we don't have to have all of those protections that were available to African-Americans in 1965. So, you know, there's going to be, if, if Biden comes in, I'm just saying, if Biden comes in and he has a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, there's some significant things he's going to have to concentrate on in his first two years. And I think voting rights is one of those things. So, uh, you know, I, I just hope that we can get those things done. Awesome. Future Senator Abdul, uh, one of the audience members said, Jared has stated election day, paper ballot backup, automatic vote registration, voter reform. What does that look like? Well, I will say this. As a resident of the District of Columbia, we have one non-voting member of Congress, so we don't have senators here. <laughs> but what I I think one of the things that's easy to do is automatic registration. Now the problem is is that then what do you if you automatically register people at the time that they're 18 years old, then are you registering them as I would assume because the best thing to do is to register them as a non-party affiliated voter. Is that possible in states? I don't know what the restrictions are there, but I'm sure that's something that would be an obvious question because if you're automatically registering people to vote, then you're automatically registering them to be non-party affiliated. I would assume that would make sense to me, but I would definitely be in support of something like that. What we saw during this COVID crisis, DC is actually one of the states. so. There was D.C., there was Georgia, and there was also Kentucky who had primary elections after COVID hit. And so we saw D.C. was the first, was the first city. What happened in the District of Columbia was terrible. And you had the Black Lives Matter activists and many others calling out our mayor for voter suppression because out of the, I know in the ward where I live, out of the 20 or so precincts that are typically open, there were three that were open on primary day. I don't consider that voter suppression, but what I do know is that the Bipartisan Justice Center came out with a report talking about the sheer difficulty in doing all mail voting, mail-in voting during a pandemic, because there are so many considerations that you have to take into account. I think that, again, things like, yes, um, automatic voter registration, I think that we can do a better job of even engaging as a, as a um, conservative, there's a better. There are things that we can do to do a better job in registering people to vote to get people really civically engaged. I think part of the problem is is that it gets to a Democrat versus a Republican thing. I think that we should expand opportunities for everyone to vote. But I will mess with you on this point. I so I I would be fine with maybe some sort of online verification where you're able to vote. 
But then that's essentially the argument. Well, that's the opposite of the argument that people have been making against why we, we don't show our ID when we go to the polls. So I think that there are a lot of different things that we can do. Will we do it? I don't know. Gotcha. Gotcha. Future President Zoe. <laughs> Voter reform, voting reform. I can't just log on to my app next to my iTunes, put in my Google password and just select who I want to vote for. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, so I agree with everything that's been said. Um, and I'll touch on I'll touch on where we're going with the future. One, there's a huge lack of education. Um, in our school systems when it comes to voting. It baffles me that we can talk about the entire history of this country, but we barely talk about the importance of voting. And it's just not instilled in students from an early age that voting is a civic, it's a civic right, but it's also a civic duty. Um, if you're excited to drive a car at 16, you should be excited to vote at 18. And so we have to do a better job of educating everyone about the importance of voting. Um, the second point is we really need to start thinking broadly about what voting looks like in this country. To your point, why can't we go onto an app and vote? I mean, if I can verify my bank account and my information so I can log onto my bank account or pay my taxes, surely I can verify my information enough to be able to vote. If that means that y'all are sending us out a pin, we have to sign up through a system. I mean, it can be done. It's just a matter of who's willing to, to make it happen. Um, and so we are kind of living in the stone ages when it comes to voting. And we're seeing this during COVID. Why do I have to stand outside in a line for seven hours and risk my health to cast a vote? And how is that deterring people who may have to go to work or they have children at home or they just don't want to stand outside for seven hours? That's not that's not encouraging people to vote. That's just making them look at this as a process that was not created for everyone. And um, and unfortunately, it's in our communities where we see the least amount of polling locations, where we see the you know the worst conditions. We don't have a roof over our heads in terms of if it's raining. Um, there's no food nearby if it's if it's a hot summer day. So we really do need to be innovative. And I mean, I'm a millennial, but this next generation that's coming up. They're not, they're not going to be enthusiastic about standing in line. So yes, I think the person who can come up with an app or with a website or something, um, you know, I think we have enough capable minds in this country to develop a way for us to more expeditiously and um, more from, from a technological standpoint, make voting just more accessible and easier for everyone. Awesome. I agree with everyone. I mean, I get hit up all the time for my student loans, even when I change my numbers. So I know you can create an app. They even find my burner accounts on Instagram and DM me. So I know it's possible. Last question. I'm going to start with you, Zoe. Uh, obviously, people have the right to vote for whoever. I would never, ever take away somebody's choice. But when the American citizen comes or goes to the polls this November, what is at stake? What should be on the forefront of their mind? Not not party ideology, not, you know, whatever, whatever, because we got a lot of unhappy campers with either side. Right. What should be the main focus uh, for this this coming election? You know, I think just general compassion for human life. Um we can argue back and forth about what makes someone qualified to be president. The reality is he has a staff of 8,000 people. He or she has a staff of 8,000 plus people. He has cabinet secretaries. There are enough people to advise you if 
if you are not intellectually capable of, of serving the post. But I think what this country really needs right now is a moral compass. And we need someone who is compassionate about all people and who is making policies that keep everyone in mind, regardless of your race, of your class, of your gender, of your religion, just basic compassion and humanity. And it's something that I think we have lacked for the last four years. Um, and it's this is not about Democratic or Republican. This is just basic human, just human instinct, you know, to hurt or to not hurt someone and to put in policies that hurt or don't hurt a certain suspect of people. So I think um, for those who are voting, if you're voting for the first time or if you're really frustrated about the system and you just hate everyone who's who's going to be on the ballot, but you still want to cast a vote, just think about it. Who is really going to care at the end of the day about you as a person? Um, all economic, um, political considerations aside, just basic human rights. Basic human rights to hurt or not to hurt. Mr. Abdul, what should the voter uh, place in the forefront of their mind before they cast uh, that ballot? What should they consider? I think that this the same thing that we consider with each each election cycle. It doesn't matter who the president is. The main thing that we should be concerned about is how our bottom lines are affected. And a lot of that has to do with the economy. So what is are you better off now? What is your situation now versus you? It was four years ago. Are there policies that either of uh, the candidates, well, we obviously will have Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but are there policies that you see that are beneficial, not just to you, but to your community? So that's at the end, that's whether we're talking about things like education, energy, um, the Small Business Administration. This administration has a record that you can actually vote on. I was one of those as someone who voted for Barack Obama twice and became a Republican in 2016 when voting for Donald Trump. I began to realize in the eight years of Barack Obama that there were certain expectations that I had of Barack Obama that were just simply real unrealistic. And so a lot of the things that I liked about Barack Obama Yes, I, there were policies definitely that I liked, but I liked Barack Obama as a person. And I realized in that eight years of his administration that liking someone as a person is not good enough if you're talking about things that can really have an impact on the black community. A lot of people argue obviously that he was stifled by just the mere fact of being black. And I will concede some points there, but I think ultimately as far as we, and as far as the black community is concerned, we need to understand, first of all, that a lot of the things that directly impacts us happens at the local level. So we have to also get involved at the local level. But at the presidential level, I think that we should just be aware of what it is that a president is able to do. And there are people definitely who will not support Donald Trump because they don't they just um, they take umbrage at his personality. And I totally agree with that. But again, I learned in that eight years of Barack Obama that having a pastor as a president is great. It makes you feel great, but it doesn't necessarily change what's happening on the ground. Feelings need to change. People need to change. And presidents, unfortunately, aren't able to, have not historically been able to do that as far as moving the country. That's a, gr that's a great point. Attorney Powell, personality versus policy. Uh, that's an interesting uh, point. You and me, First president I voted for was Barack. It was 2008, right? Uh, Grant Park, I remember our pastor, founder, 
Vince Cody Marshall was invited to do the opening prayer, but he got sick and not do it. Uh, so we we know Barry, right? And not <laughs> just, you know, but when we look at it, and you have to have that honest conversation, those eight years, we didn't get what we thought we were going to get. So this coming election, what should the voter consider? Well, I just finished reading a book called Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's a presidential historian, and it's an excellent, excellent read. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, which is one of the presidents that she highlights, said that understanding human nature is the most important thing about leadership. And uh, I think I would find myself agreeing, not that I'm disagreeing with Malik, but I am more resonating to what Zoe said. There is a, and here we go, Theodore Roosevelt again. He said that the president has a bully pulpit. Doesn't necessarily get things done, but he has to use that bully pulpit. He has to preach certain things. He has to say certain things. He has to inspire or she has to inspire. And that's all part of the presidency. Uh, part of what I don't appreciate, I guess, if I can say it that way, in 45 is that he uh, is always the smartest person in the room. I mean, get some people who know more than you know. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I was impressed with General James Mattis a few weeks ago when Mattis said, I mean, and it was very unflattering, but Mattis was speaking from his heart that here's a man who tries to divide people. And uh, he said, and, and, and if I can say it correctly, he says he's the first president that I've ever worked for who has not tried his best to unite people. He doesn't even try. So all of those things have an impact. Uh, I think it was Malik who said, a lot of things have to be done at the local level. Yes, yeah, so we're looking for the president to make sure our garbage is picked up on time. No, look to your alderman to make sure the garbage is picked up on time. Uh, you know, and, and but when it comes to uh, presidential leadership, we have to look at the bigger picture. Uh, I, I have voted Democratic most of the time. Cody, you said that Barack was the first president you voted for? Yes. Let me, let me tell you how I am. First president I ever voted for was in 1976, Jimmy Carter. I voted for Jimmy Carter in 76. I had just turned 18 years of age. So that kind of tells you how old I am. I'm the old guy in the room. Uh, so, but but a lot of that, a lot of what we look for, and Cody, you said about personality. I'm not looking for personality as much as I'm looking for character. Okay, and there was a Republican who ran for president in 2016 that if I if he had gotten nomination, I would have had a hard time not voting for him. And his name is John Kasich. Yeah. He was the former governor of Ohio. And the I love about Kasich is that he is a man of integrity and he is a man of character and he is a man of compassion. So if Hillary had said some things that I said, ah, I can't get with her, if Kasich was on the on the ticket, I think I would have voted for him. 
because he is more unlike, no offense, Malik, but he's more unlike any Republican presidential candidate that I had seen in my lifetime. So I think you have to look for the character of the person. Policies come, policies go. You get them sometime, you don't get them sometime. But what is the character of this person like who's taking over the highest position in our land and, and becomes the leader of the free world? So I think we have to think about that. Awesome. Well, look, I appreciate it. John Kasich, you have a fan in Chicago. So if you're thinking about a late uh, bid, you can do that as well. Uh, but thank you guys for tuning in. Until next time, I appreciate everybody. Bye. Thanks, brother. Thank you. All right. God bless. Perfect.